welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for taking the time to join us. My name is Michael Smith, and I am a client advisor here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management with our endowments, foundations, and healthcare group. I'm thrilled to be joined by Andy Dacey and Anurag Agarwal to discuss how transportation as an asset class has shown resilience and to learn about the investment opportunities within the sector. Andy serves as both CEO and CIO of J.P. Morgan Asset Management's Global Transportation Group. Notably, Andy has spent his entire career, over 30 years, in the transportation sector, mostly in various roles at J.P. Morgan. He has significant experience in both advising and providing capital to transportation companies, as well as investing and building portfolios for our clients. Impressively, Andy has again been named on the Lloyd's list of the 100 most influential people in shipping globally, a testament to Andy's stature in the industry. Anurag serves as head of portfolio management and has over 20 years of experience in operating, advisory, and investing roles. He previously worked with Andy and J.P. Morgan's investment bank before coming over to the asset management side. Anurag runs North America for the transportation group and is responsible for all investor engagement globally. He's a senior member of the team and on the investment committee. Andy and Anurag, thanks for being here to share your insights today. Great to be here, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Great to be here. So over the next 40 minutes, Andy and Anurag will share their experience, viewpoints, and outlook on global transportation investing. Okay, Andy, addressing the white elephant in the room, how does investing in transportation make sense given the backdrop and impact of COVID-19? That's a great question, Mike, and clearly it's something I'm sure many would think about when thinking about transportation. What I'll do is perhaps give a little bit of background on transportation in general and then segue into discussing how it's been performing in the midst of COVID. So just thinking about transportation and not getting too deep on this call, but it really comes in many forms, ships, planes, trains, other related transport assets like trucking, for example, all of which really forms the lifeblood of both domestic and international commerce and has driven global supply chains for years and continues to do so. And I believe, as I'll talk about in this discussion here, that none of this is necessarily going to change anytime soon. Ships, for example, carry 90% of world trade, and all of this really forms an essential component of modern life. Now, investing in transportation can really take on two different forms. One is more opportunistic, and the other is more core. And while both approaches have their merits, I think one has to always ask oneself, what risk-reward do you want when you think about any investment class, and particularly in transportation, do you want the higher octane, higher risk, higher reward potentially that opportunistic investing in transportation provides, which really is driven by dislocation that doesn't happen necessarily all the time, low prices, mean reversion, market recovery, and a lot more volatility and rates. And I think you have to be very nimble in opportunistic investing. Now, when you think about core plus transportation, which frankly is an area that I would argue is really something that's become available to the institutional market more recently due to some regulatory changes I'll talk about, that's a much different proposition and one that, for my liking, is more consistent, it's more predictable, lower risk, and frankly, in this environment, higher reward given how it's performed over the last few years and even how it's performed during covid And so when you think about core plus transportation, what are the hallmarks of that? Well, they're typically bigger ticket assets, assets that individually would cost 50 to potentially 250 or $300 million 
piece that's true in the shipping space. That's true in some of the land-based fleet leasing where you're actually buying an entire fleet of assets. So that number would pertain to clearly a lot of granularity. These particular investment strategies are really driven by long-term leases. And these leases are to very high-quality counterparties, mostly investment-grade counterparties, which provides a very consistent, predictable quarterly income stream, which frankly, in the current environment, has continued to deliver high single digits on a net basis to investors. And when I say current, this also has encapsulated what's been happening during the past six months in COVID, but also happened prior to COVID as well. And the big question is, why do these assets deliver this consistent income stream, hundreds of basis points above treasuries, high-grade and high-yield bonds prior to and during COVID? And I think the key point there is that First of all, the assets tend to be unique, so you have to have an operational and value understanding to really play in this market effectively. If you don't have that, then I think there are pitfalls and potential distractions and rabbit holes that you can get caught in. But if you understand the asset, if you understand the value of the asset and how to operate the asset, particularly in the shipping space, then you can bargain for these longer-term leases that can be 5, 10, 15 years with really high-quality counterparties, as I mentioned. And what you're getting is the security of the lessee's investment-grade balance sheet during that time of that lease. So, for example, in COVID, even though we've had significant market up and down, not so much actually in the transportation space, but in other parts of the market, of course, that we've all seen, these lessees continue to pay for the asset day in and day out. And we may not get the highs that you would see in opportunistic investing, but we also don't get the lows. We get a very consistent, very predictable, and very respectable, given where interest rates are going these days, high single-digit return that gets delivered on a quarterly basis. And that, frankly, has been extremely attractive during the last few years as we've developed out this strategy. Also, we haven't seen any defaults, and that's where the counterparty becomes critical. You have to really be careful to not just select your asset, but also select your counterparty. And while aviation is a bit of a different story, and I'll perhaps talk about that a little bit later in the call today, even there, having the right counterparty, banking or leasing to the winners, the ultimate survivors of this market, when you see a dislocation like you've seen in the aviation market where liquidity is available to either well-capitalized, low-cost carriers or some of the bigger airlines that have access to liquidity, those are the companies that are going to survive and those are the companies that are continue to pay for their assets during a dislocation like we've seen in COVID. So that's some of the backdrop is you're insulating your return by picking good quality assets that have longer-term lease durations that generate this income. And you know, one of the other points that I think we've been hearing a lot about during COVID is this whole concept of deglobalization, trade wars. What I was alluding to earlier on, you know, are we going to see a wholesale change in how the world thinks about moving products or manufacturing products? And the data would suggest that despite all the rhetoric that's happening amongst politicians, that port calls, for example, you would expect those to be down dramatically. While they did fall in the first part of COVID back in March and April, Port calls in China today are 107% of what they were in 2019. So volumes have rebounded dramatically there. And even Europe and the U.S. that are arguably behind Asia in terms of coming out of COVID, and certainly there are more speed bumps perhaps in the future, Europe and U.S. are at 90% plus, 90, 91% of 2019 port calls and port volumes and growing. I think one of the drivers behind that is the fact that commerce moves essential goods. So during this difficult time, we've seen, with the exception of aviation again, but again, their counterparties, as I mentioned, is critical, but in the shipping and the trucking and the trains, medical supplies, agricultural products, retail products, all of that has actually done reasonably well during COVID, and transportation has supported that. So 
in this particular time, there's been a lot of positive tailwinds that have supported transportation. And when I think about the ultimate dialogue between, let's say, China representing the East and the U.S., for example, representing the West, or let's say a Europe-U.S. sort of contingent, when deglobalization is mentioned, it's often thought that this is just about commerce and trade. But deglobalization is not just about commerce and trade. It's far from that. It's many different categories. It's cybersecurity, it's technology, it's military issues, it's finance, communication. Commerce is one element. And what we've seen is that we expect competition to occur probably in the areas that it has happened already, cyber technology, military, and finance, more so as the, the years unfold, I believe, between China and the U.S. But trade itself, it seems like the data supporting that, like water, is finding a way. And we saw that pre-COVID of agricultural products moving from the U.S. because there are tariffs down to South America, getting mixed to South American products, and then getting exported to Asia and China. China relocating manufacturing capacity out of China into other Southeast Asian countries and then sending those products to North America. So, again, there's this channel that trade, at least, is finding, and frankly, the data plus decades of post-World War II supply chains and low-cost labor production don't seem to be upsetting that, despite what we hear in the press on a regular basis. So COVID, at least for transport, has not been that big of an impact, with the exception of the airline market. And then lastly, before I finish my comments here in the introduction, is that the reason that these core transportation investment opportunities exist was really due to a regulatory change that came about post-GFC, primarily in Europe with the various basal steps that we saw plus CBRD. With those new regulatory changes, banks that have been active in leasing assets to various counterparties pulled out of the market because the equity charge for keeping equity in an asset on their balance sheet that was not a financial asset increased dramatically as a result of these regulatory changes. So this business of long-term leasing of transportation assets over long periods of time to high-quality counterparties is nothing new. It's been around for decades. However, the key providers of capital that pursued it have left, and that's what opened up the opportunity for institutional investors to get in. And frankly, if it hadn't been for that regulatory change, I don't think this particular access would be available. But now that it is mixing the combination of operational expertise, understanding the assets, understanding the lessees, and building a diversified portfolio, we believe, creates a very attractive, predictable, yielding asset class that has the ability to perform over many years. Yeah, that's really great, Andy. Thanks a lot for all of that great background. And I'd love to bring Anurag in there to continue on that in terms of giving us a little better understanding about how that income is being able to be generated from transportation assets. Anurag, could you maybe walk us through, I know Andy mentioned arranging for leases for the assets that are owned. Can you maybe shed some more light on that for us? Sure, Mike. Happy to do that. So I think as Andy was saying, it's really important when looking at transportation as a sector to separate the two bookends that one can invest using a totally different approach. So, you know, when we talk about opportunistic, clearly we're not focused on income and income generation because we're looking to invest in basically the appreciation of the underlying value of the asset. That is a very, very different approach when you are looking for income, which is predominantly more of a leasing strategy or an approach that uses all the fundamentals of leasing. So let's try and understand first the structure that these leases have, because from that comes the sources both of risk as well as income. In transportation, for the most part, leases are structured to be what we categorize as take or pay. Take or pay basically implies that by contract, once a lease has been signed between a lessor and a lessee, there is 
pretty much no unilateral way that a lessee can back out of that obligation. In fact, to take it a step further, that obligation is oftentimes backed by the full faith and guarantee of that lessee's corporate credit or their corporate balance sheet. So immediately what it tells you is that the higher the quality of the lessee's credit, the more predictability there can be in them making good on that obligation, which eventually becomes the income that is distributed as yield from a core plus strategy. The other aspect of risk oftentimes is duration. So Andy was talking about long-term durations. And the reason why that becomes important is when you think about a typical asset in the transportation space, we typically will assign a 25-year useful life profile to an asset. We also depreciate that asset on a straight-line basis over that 25-year useful life. So what we are doing is over the lifetime of the asset, we are not only making a return on the asset, but we are also depreciating the asset on average at a 4% a year basis, and we are making sure that that 4% is recovered. So the longer the duration of the lease on a take-or-pay basis, the more predictability there is for that period of time that the asset will A, be employed, and there will be income generation. So over a 25-year period, if you have on average a lease duration that can be anywhere greater than five years, all the way up to 10, 15 years in some cases, it means that the asset only has to face the market no more than three or four times in its entire useful life. When you compare that to the opportunistic world, you typically see assets in that kind of approach be leased on what's oftentimes called the spot market, where assets get leased for durations as little as three months. And oftentimes, it's not uncommon to see an asset be leased two or three times in any one given year. So if you think about 25 years in the opportunistic mindset, that's over 50 to 75 different cycles of reemployment versus in the core plus world, where you're looking at no more than three to four different cycles of reemployment. So the combination of high quality credit, along with the longest possible durations that can be attached to the leases, provide a pretty strong foundation of income generation. And then finally, when you think about where the lease sits actually on the priority of cash flows, when you think about the lessee's cash flows, that is, there is an interesting takeaway there because leases are, for the most part, categorized as core operating expenses. So these sit very senior on the P&L, pretty much alongside employee salaries and office rents, and get serviced, pre-debt service. So interestingly, not only are you getting the support of the corporate balance sheet from a credit point of view, which is the same support you would get if you were to go out and buy a fixed income security issued by the same corporation, but you actually are significantly senior as a lease because you are getting service before any debt service compared to, as we know, where a unsecured debt obligation would sit, which is fairly junior on that priority of cash flows. So in terms of how we think about income generation, we think about it as identifying assets that are critical to the core business of the end users. We think about these end users and having strong corporate credits and we look for the longest possible durations so that the combination of these can help us build a diversified basket of cash flows. about how much over their debt rates are you seeing leases being put on the books for? So, you know, it's changed over time, but on average, we've seen anywhere between 500 to 600 basis points over that you can get in a leasing strategy. 
that then you would get if you were to go out and access the same corporate credit via a fixed income security. And it sounds pretty attractive. Can you just help us understand a little better on the thinking on the lessees, their corporate finance decision making there? Why would they do the lease at that versus just going out and, you know, with the rates being as low as they are, I think around 2% or so in the corporate debt markets? Can you help us understand a little better? Sure. And this is a question we get asked a lot. I think for this, you have to go back a little bit in time to look at the history of leasing and how corporations, for the most part, particularly those in asset-intensive industries, have chosen to invest their free cash flows over the last 40 or 50 years. So the quick history here is that leasing is not a new concept when it comes to these end users. In fact, most asset-intensive industries of the world, energy and oil-related businesses, mining companies, utilities, industrial companies, all have always had a need for critical transportation assets to be part of their supply chain. Now, to your point, historically, there was a time where most of these corporations chose to invest in and own these assets onto their balance sheets. But as these companies got bigger and they went public and a lot of these large corporations were having to face Wall Street and the high expectations of return on equity targets, which oftentimes were in the low double digits to mid to high teens, it became pretty clear to them that they could actually continue to have access to these transportation assets without having to own them. Particularly when you put into context the fact that were you to, as a large corporation, own an asset, while you still may get these low costs of debt rates, as you were pointing out, you still have to put some equity into the asset. And that equity oftentimes gets or requires, rather, to deliver a much higher target ROE. So I can tell you in my 20 years of doing this, I still to meet a public company CFO or CEO, for that matter, who wants to own an asset that they could have leased for, you know, somewhere in the mid to high single digits in terms of cost versus having to deploy equity capital that they know actually is expected to deliver a much higher return to the street. So that's one main reason, which is it's diluted to their EPS to own these assets. And it is also considered to be a non-core asset on their balance sheets when you look at their core business. The second is really this idea that, you know, most corporations, as we know these days, are very focused on expanding their core business. So to the extent they have cash flow available for capital expenditures, I think Wall Street analysts and management, for the most part, prefers investing that capital in their core business. So, again, going back to this idea that why own an asset that you can lease and to the extent they can actually lease these assets for sometimes their entire useful life, pretty much the asset does for them what the asset would have done were they to own the asset. So there really is no incremental benefit for them to own these assets. So there is no real financial incentive. Yes. It's Andy, I thought I'd just add to your comments and two other really critical points about why companies choose to lease versus own. One is that, as you were alluding to the fact that they're big ticket assets, so they consume a lot of capacity on the balance sheet. And with those lower returns than the target returns that the company is trying to achieve, too much of your capital stack gets put into these lower returns. And that obviously is going to have the impact that they don't want, which you were alluding to in terms of not being able to achieve their equity returns. There's also a critical element, which is time, right? So these assets typically have useful lives of 25 years. We're leasing them for anywhere from 5 to 15 years, which certainly brings a little bit of risk. But getting back to my earlier point, if you understand the asset and if you also, in every underwriting you do, and I constantly belabor this point with anyone I speak to who thinks about investing in transportation assets, 
these assets get old. You have to depreciate them. You have to assume that they will be worth less over time than they're worth today. And if you don't factor that into your calculations, then I think as an investor, you're heading down the wrong path and you'll have issues. But we do. And on top of that, what that does, that ultimately mitigates the risk that we have by saying, we're only going to do this deal if we can make the target return we're pursuing, but also that in 10 years' time, this asset in our underwriting is going to be worth 60% of what it was worth on day one if it's a brand new asset. So we provide that expertise in understanding what the asset's residual values are over time by being very consistent and conservative in depreciation, but also that's the flexibility that these end users like because they can lease it for 10 years and then reassess their needs at that point. Now, oddly enough, over time, we've seen that frequently these leases just get renewed and once they get comfortable with the operations and the assets, they tend to extend them. But that flexibility provides some optionality to these companies that they would otherwise not have if they owned them. Just really helpful background, and I think you touched on some of the risk there. And just mentioning your 500 or 600 basis points seems really attractive right now, particularly in the current environment with rates being so low around the world. What are some of the other risks that you take into account? I know you mentioned depreciation, and then also you touched on credit risk. Can you touch a little more on some of the risks that you need to factor in? Sure. And, you know, there certainly is, as we've discussed so far, upfront, you're certainly being exposed to some of the credit risk as well as the residual value risk in the asset that you take on as a lessor. But I think when you think about investing in the sector on a portfolio basis, I think you have to think about a few other things. The first is, I think, asset selection. Clearly, in an industry or in an environment where you are trying to get the longest possible employment for the asset, and you are also focused on other criterion like obsolescence of these assets from a technology and design point of view, regulatory changes. Certainly, the transportation industry is subject to a fair amount of regulation. Fuel consumption has become a very important criterion for a lot of end users. In most cases, fuel is a pass-through cost, so the end users are very sensitive to the fuel consumption specifications of the asset. And then finally, ESG, which continues to be a growing theme in the world that everyone is focused on, including us here at JP Morgan. So I think asset selection becomes a very important part of this. And what I can tell you is the way we see the world, we certainly tend to favor the younger, more modern, fuel-efficient, future-proof assets because we think they hold their values and are the most desirable in any given situation. We spoke about credit, so I won't talk much about that. But I do want to talk a little bit about concentration. I think when you think about transportation, and you know, I think most people on this call have some exposure to transportation, be it in vertical leasing strategies that could be only in a part of shipping. It could be aviation. We see a lot of investors who have exposure to the aviation sectors. I think it is really important to take a step back and think about the benefits of having diversified exposure to the sector. One of the things we think about a lot in our portfolio construction process is how do we make sure that we are not taking too much capital concentration risk in any one type of asset, in any one particular sector, or even when it comes to the selection of our counterparties, we try to make sure that we are not taking too much concentration risk in any one industry or any one particular type of counterparty. So when you think about the benefits of having a diversified approach to transportation, it is a very broad suite of choices. You can invest within shipping. I mean, shipping is a broad, generically used term. 
But you have many different types of assets. You have dry bulk carriers, you have container ships, you have cargo tankers, you have car carriers. When you think of energy and energy-related assets, you have the traditional assets like the crude carriers and the chemical tankers, but you also have the new and more interesting assets in the alternative energy space, be it the gas carriers, we are seeing natural gas, certainly end up being one of the more exciting new stories in that sector. The same goes with other sectors like aviation, types of aircraft. So there's many different ways to package and prepare a portfolio so that you are not taking too much concentration risk. And I think, at least in my opinion, when you are too exposed to a particular type of asset within a vertical or any one sector within transportation, probably from a risk point of view, that changes the profile a little bit. One last point, it just came to my mind, so I'll mention it is, I think you also have to think about execution risk. I think manager selection and the experience of the manager in having worked in the transportation space is fairly important. These are machines. There's a lot of technical management that goes into the operations of these assets. And particularly when you think about shipping assets, 90% of the time in the shipping world, the leases are structured such that the lessee is not interested in taking on the technical management responsibilities that come with the lease. So as a lessor, you are also expected to not only prove that you can manage and operate these assets for long periods of time, but you've actually done it and you've done it well in the past. So a huge barrier to entry, as well as a huge process of establishing yourself in this market is the technical management expertise that you can demonstrate to a lessee. And you know, I can certainly tell you, for example, we've been doing this for over 10 years, and I've invested over $6 billion in these 10 years into the sector. And we certainly have a body of work or a thousand leases that we have done over the past 10 years that helps us establish that credibility. So I think it goes to say that particularly in transportation, it is very important to not just look at the manager from a capital deployment point of view, but it's equally important to look at the manager from a technical management and operations expertise point of view. Yeah, that's a great point, Anurag, and I think it's a great beat in Andy to my next question, which is around just the overall marketplace. You know, there's been a rush to a lot of the private market areas of investing. I was curious if you wanted to elaborate further on Anurag's point there, but also if you could touch on how crowded you're finding the marketplace to be as you put new money to work. Yeah, that's a great question, Mike. It's multifaceted. One of the things that shipping in general, we're just talking about the shipping part of transportation that's benefiting from is the fact that capital has not really been coming into the market in any meaningful way over the last seven to eight years. What that has led to is a fairly balanced order book. So the supply-demand equation in shipping specifically is fairly attractive now. Less of an issue for us because what you'll see typically is not a lot of volatility in the values of the assets in the core plus space. Opportunistic assets do have more variability. But even there, things have smoothed out quite a bit compared to where we were back in the 2000s pre the global financial crisis, where you had a significant uptick in demand coming from China entering the World Trade Organization. That all is really gone now. And where that becomes interesting for us is that because these assets, and as Anurag very correctly pointed out, don't really confront the market more than, let's say, three to four times in the course of their useful lives, you'll see essentially the valuations drift down their depreciation curve over that time period. You might see some variation where they're 5% above or 5% below. But 
point I guess I'm trying to make is there's more stability. However, shipping, particularly in the opportunistic side, which are these small ticket assets that people rushed in and tried to take advantage of because they expected the values to pop up after some dislocation that may have occurred, that has actually scared off a lot of PE money that was struggling for or targeting the sort of 20-plus percent returns. These big-ticket assets, as Anurag very well pointed out, you need scale. If you don't have scale and the operational expertise to deliver the needed cargo transportation that these investment-grade counterparties are looking for, then you really can't compete. You can't compete as purely a financial investor. You have to have the operational expertise, and I can't stress that enough because having that expertise allows you to compete for RFPs with utilities, with mining companies, with global conglomerates, whether it's in the energy logistics space, whether it's in the wind farm maintenance space, whether it's in moving iron ore, for example, for investment-grade miners out of Australia. They want to only deal with companies that are going to deliver a high-quality service and make sure that there's no flip in that service delivery. And that can come from everything. And that's why we, the way we think about it is having that technical know-how. And look, I've been doing this for 30 years, and if you'd asked me 30 years ago what an inert gas generator was or you know, what you're going to do to manage the, you know, Coravallis pump systems on board. It's little engineering things like that that actually deliver a much more efficient service, a much more fuel-efficient service, which is really important because it's the lessees that pay for the fuel. So if you operate your ship that much better than the next person, and that ship is, from an ESG perspective, technologically advanced and cutting edge, then you're going to get the 5, the 10, the 15-year lease, which is going to underpin this strategy. So, Having that expertise and the scale to insulate any potential variability that you might have is critical. So with a significant number of assets, that just creates the perception from the counterparties that they're dealing with an operator that has substantial capital so that they can ensure that the assets are maintained at the level that you need. And all of that sort of packed together creates this formula, in my opinion, that allows us to get these longer-term high-quality leases that generate this current income. I have a little acronym that I sort of keep in the back of my head from a diversification perspective, and I assume that maybe many of our clients on the phone today are Americans, and so this is a football analogy, and if we have any international clients, it's American football, but for those of you in America, you'll understand what sacking the quarterback is all about. So the opposing team, the way we make sure that that quarterback is sacked, and I use that word sacked, and I've kind of taken liberty and used S-A-C-D, as sector diversity, asset diversity, counterparty diversity, and duration diversity. And that's our watchword in terms of how we build the portfolio. We sack the risk of the opposing team by having this very strong balance across these four critical pillars of how we approach portfolio construction. Yeah, Andy, I like the analogy. And I think it's great because you point out the diversification that's needed inside the portfolio of transportation assets. We get a lot of questions about transport with respect to overall asset allocation. Our clients are responsible for managing broadly diversified asset allocation portfolios. Anurag, how does an allocation to transportation fit into these broadly diversified portfolios? Yeah, Mike, you know, that's a really important question, I think. And it's important because, you know, transportation as an asset class is just about starting to establish itself as a really reliable, true alternative asset class. And I think we've been, in my sort of three years of now doing this, with our core plus strategy, probably spoken to, you know, four or 500 different investors globally. So here's sort of some of the takeaways. I think the first is that from a pure allocation point of view, particularly in the context of where transportation sits as an asset class, it sits as an alternative slash real asset category. So just the same way you would approach the real estate, 
infrastructure, I think transportation, and here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management, we have pretty much established transportation as what we call the third leg of the real assets stool. So I think alternatives and within alternatives real assets, to the extent that allocation exists within a client portfolio, is where we see a lot of times the asset class being, uh, being put into. We are also seeing a huge level of interest coming from the private credit world. Now, again, when you think about private credit, fundamentally the fact that if you took away for a moment your focus on the types of assets we are investing in, and you went back to the simple idea that by investing in transportation leasing strategies, you cannot perform the underlying corporate bond yield-to-worth spreads by 500 to 600 basis points, that creates a pretty meaningful arbitrage in pretty interesting way to access the same corporate credit, particularly in markets like this. So, for example, if you take any high-quality investment-grade counterparty that's rated investment-grade, you're looking at 25 to 3% cash yields in this market, maybe even lower. When you compare that to the fact that you can get mid-to-high single-digit cash yields on a quarterly basis, that certainly sets you up to make the argument for why the asset class belongs in a private credit portfolio. So we're certainly seeing some interest come from the private credit side. And I think at the end of the day, something that I've learned over the last few years is where the asset class belongs is sometimes a lot to do with or is governed by who is actually making the allocation. And what I mean by that is we've seen consultants, and we have a lot of consultant partners that we do a lot of work with, Consultants tend to have a fair amount of influence, and many times we've seen consultants that will actually put transportation within a private credit matrix. We've seen consultants that will come to the asset class, again, taking a more real assets-based approach. And in some cases, they will put this into, quote-unquote, strategic or opportunistic allocation, as we've also seen in some of the large public plans. So there is a little bit of flexibility that can sometimes be seen, but that comes, again, when it's driven by the approach of the allocator or the person making the recommendation. But I think in most cases, you know, it's pretty much real assets and private credit. which seem to be the two most common places. Okay, great. Thanks, Anurag. That's really helpful. And actually, I'd like to circle back on aviation. I know you own planes. Andy, I didn't want to, you know, and make sure that people understand exactly how you're owning planes, you know, given the situation the airlines are in today. So if you could maybe help us understand that a little bit, that'd be great. Yeah, sure, Mike. At some point, we briefly talked about ESG as well. And if we have time, then I'd be happy to talk a little bit about that after I answer this aviation comment. Yeah, the aviation market, look, things are bad in the aviation space right now. And much like with leasing, the way that the aviation market typically works is you have airlines that typically will own some number of aircraft, a little bit different than some of the end users we're talking about in, let's say, the shipping or other transportation spaces. And then they'll typically lease. Now, the less well-capitalized an airline is, you'll find the more leases they have because they don't have the capital to own a lot of aircraft. A lot of legacy airlines that have been around for a long time that have gone through many decades of existence you know, have assets that have been either around or they've invested some of their free cash flow in owning assets. So it tends to range anywhere from 50-50 for the better airlines down to 10-90 or in some cases 100% lease. So in a situation like COVID, where the impact is beyond what the airline industry has ever experienced before, we think a couple of things are going to happen. First of all, I think it's going to take some time to get back to pre-COVID levels. If you talk to industry pundits, that could range anywhere from two years, probably at the most optimistic. So let's say late 
Yeah, I think late 21 is probably even early. So early 22 to get back to pre-COVID to five years. So I think the reality is probably somewhere in there, and a lot of that will be driven by vaccine development and herd immunity and things like that that we can't necessarily predict just yet. But the key thing from an economic perspective is there's going to be winners and there'll be losers in this situation. So the winners, they're going to come out of this much better because they'll get more market share. And we've already seen a lot of the losers losing. There have been over 20 bankruptcies in the airline market in the last few months since COVID settled in. But the well-capitalized airlines that have access to liquidity, typically national carriers or well-capitalized, low-cost carriers, will be the survivors and they'll come out of the stronger than better. And that, for example, could be an easy jet in Europe, Delta, for example. So some of the U.S. airlines that have access to liquidity that the government made available to them, they're going to be winners at the end. It's these undercapitalized, typically emerging market, low-cost carriers that will be the losers. We already see them falling by the wayside, which is actually getting the better capitalized companies that much more excited about their growth prospects post-COVID. And, you know, for example, Wizz Air, which is an investment-grade company in the European Union, which was started by an American private equity group, has already announced plans to expand into the Middle East, and they're starting a new airline there because they see a lot of the competition disappearing. So, much like we were talking about as a general matter in transportation investing, at least the way we do it, and we're going to get these higher single-digit returns and not the mid-teens returns, but the way I think about it and the way I like to sleep at night is to know that my counterparty has a balance sheet that's strong and that they're going to continue to pay no matter how difficult the market is. Now, look, there could be an even more draconian situation where things got even worse, and perhaps that would have a much bigger bite into airline balance sheets, but we've been extremely careful, only the newest aircraft and only to the best airlines in the world. You get a lower return because of that, but at the same time, you have the stability and the resiliency to get through a situation like COVID. So many different ways to invest in airlines, but at least for us, and we're extremely cautious and we have been since we've started, we've been picking our counterparties very, very carefully. And I think that at least today is the way to do it, to get the kind of returns that we talk about. Maybe post-COVID, when the market frees up again, some of these mid-teen-plus type midlife aircraft strategies will come back to sort of take root. But our approach, as I said, is a highly conservative one, and that same counterparty strength that we see also is, is alive and well in the aviation space. Yeah, and Andy, if I may just quickly add one point. I think, you know, I'd mentioned earlier that asset selection is fairly important when you look at a source of both resilience as well as protection when markets change, like we've seen the current market change. And I think in aviation, that is also been actually truer than probably in than what we've seen on the shipping side. If you think about just, you know, the ways one invests in the aviation sector, there are strategies out there that will potentially look at midlife assets, late life assets, older assets, and we've seen those strategies struggle more. Certainly, we've read about airlines that, while they may not have filed for bankruptcy in an effort to curtail and cut on their costs, they've been phasing out a lot of their older fleets of aircraft. So, again, if you are invested in a strategy that has midlife to late-life assets, you're probably facing a little more risk. So I think going back to this idea of investing in assets that are young, investing in assets that are oftentimes the workhorse assets of the industry. In aviation, we tend to think of the what we call narrow-body single-aisle aircraft, the A319s, the 20s, the 21s. We are seeing some positive news coming out on the 737 Maxes. Again, there is some hope that these assets will eventually get cleared to fly again, and these aircraft will also be part of the global fleet. But those are the assets that are much more in demand. If you think about growth in the aviation sector in the next 10, 15 years, that's where the growth is coming from. 
So I think it's important to also recognize that asset selection is probably as important as counterparty selection when you think about aviation. You know, that's a great segue, Anurag, into the ESG comment. Yeah, thanks, Andy. Yeah, that'd be really helpful if you could share your thoughts on ESG. I know Anurag mentioned it earlier, and Anurag might have some things to add on to that. Yeah, what I would say there is that it really lies at the heart of what we're doing in the core transport space. So core assets, as I talked about, are larger backbone assets, bigger ticket assets that really form the foundation of the global transport system. As we've talked about, these are leased for very long periods of time. So end users that are invested also typically have a very high degree of ESG focus and sensitivity. and want to make sure that they're involved in whatever they do with assets that within the confines of the respective industry those assets operate in are the most ESG progressive as possible. So for us to get these long periods of lease duration that I talked about, not only do we have the, have the operational expertise, but the assets themselves, and this builds on Anurag's point about focusing on the most modern, most technologically advanced assets, those also have to be part of the proposition because it's those assets that will have the best ESG rating, they'll be the most fuel efficient, they'll generate the lowest carbon footprint. So all these companies that we work with, they think about this and they actually report their ESG and typically we'll see, for example, miners in Australia, they report the carbon footprint that they produce from their activities. If we can give them assets that have a long delivery of carbon efficiency, that's going to be very attractive to them. And it's a really exciting future. You're seeing change in this space and across all different modes of transportation, whether it's ships or land-based transport, alternative fuels like LNG, LPG, hydrogen is being developed, certainly a lot of electrification undertakings. Ammonia is another, actually ammonia, oddly enough, for those of you who are engineers out there, you may know this, but ammonia produces zero carbon emissions. That's a very hazardous material to work with or fuel but there are ways to solve for that. So that's an example of some of the developments that are happening in this space. Alternative energy management through wind augmentation for vessels, greater engine control through software and technology enhancements that allow engines to be modulated based on sea conditions or weather conditions, and that's true for aircraft as well as for ships. Of course, trains and trucks are all being electrified. So we're seeing, even though transportation may initially have this patina of not necessarily being something that you could do a lot from a carbon perspective, as I just mentioned, there is a lot actually happening in this space. I wanted to just put a little numerical addition to the points we were making about ESG, and I share with my own kids. We obviously are all aware of some of the challenges that are happening globally with climate change, and when you see industry beginning to take positive effects to make changes there, which Oddly enough, if you're not in the shipping industry, one may not be aware of this, but there was a development and a new regulation globally called IMO 2020, which came into effect in January of this year, which was the product of about eight or nine years of debate amongst all the member nations of the United Nations. And what IMO 2020, when it was finally passed and implemented this year, created was an environment where all ships starting in January of this year had to burn low sulfur fuel. And what it did is it reduced the amount of sulfur content by 85% from the previous allowable max to where it is today. So shipping globally represents about 2% of all carbon emissions in the world for all different types of activities, whether it's farming or car transportation or aviation, shipping is 2%. So IMO 2020 in of itself is going to reduce the carbon footprint of shipping by roughly 35 to 40%, which is a huge number. And frankly, we don't trumpet that enough, but it's a very concrete example of how, at least in this space, 
industry did get together with underlying regulatory bodies throughout the world to make this very positive step. So a win there that I think all of us can be happy about as we see it get implemented. Yeah, thanks, Andy. I know you've been really committed to ESG for a while now. You've been quoted as saying that asset owners have to keep it clean and green or investors won't lend their money. So it'll be interesting to follow this as it evolves. I see we're running up against the hour, so I'm going to try to bring this to a close here. And I'd love to get some comments from each of you. I'm going to start with you, Anurag. I know you've had the good fortune of speaking with hundreds of sophisticated institutional investors and curious to know what you've most learned from your conversations with them. Sure, Mike, and thank you again for moderating this conversation today. As I think about just the most recurring themes that have come up in my conversations, I think it is that investors today are looking for a true diversifier in their portfolio. Certainly, alternatives as an asset class is starting to feel more and more attractive. I think the words uncorrelated source of income is something I've heard a lot in 2020. And I think it's important when you look at possibly what was one of the most volatile quarters in the history of the public markets being the first quarter, investors are suddenly looking beyond both fixed income as well as other ways where they can find sources of income. I think transportation as an asset class has certainly shown resilience. We certainly did not expect for the asset class to be tested with the backdrop of the market that we've just experienced. But within that context and beyond, I think we have recognized that this is an asset class that truly can be a diversifier, uncorrelated source of income. And I think more importantly, it is something that expands the classic definition of infrastructure where we have a lot of people thinking about transportation as the moving part of infrastructure. So there's that piece to it as well, which deserves some consideration. And then finally, what I will say is that there is this general view that we're starting to hear now where the 60-40 classic framework of a portfolio from an allocation point of view is starting to be rethought. And to that extent, we're seeing interesting new ways to introduce elements and asset classes that can further help our investors and clients achieve these end goals. So I think just lots of positive things and lots of ways to think about this. Thanks, Anurag. And Andy, given your vantage point of the transportation finance and investing arena, where are you seeing the most opportunity and what's your outlook on transportation from here? That's a big question, Mike, and I'll try to keep it simple in terms of my answer. But everything we talked about today, and that maybe is the key message here, is we try to keep it simple. We focus on the biggest assets that have the longest duration, least potential, that are the most cutting edge from a technology and ESG perspective, which makes them attractive to counterparties, the rigorous on cost. Because we are the size that we are and any strategy in this market, I think, needs scale. That's what allows you to access these opportunities. So that provides, I think, both a platform and a challenge for other capital trying to find its way into this market because you need that operating ability. So mix all that together, I think you get a very attractive, diversified portfolio that has the strength and resiliency to perform year in and year out and mitigates the risk by spreading out duration risk over time, and diversifying across, as we talked about, sector asset and counterparty. So stick to our knitting, and it may not be super exciting, but it produces a pretty attractive, consistent return. 
for institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution not for retail distribution. This communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. JP Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of JP Morgan Chase and Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by JP. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am.jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities in the United States by JP. Morgan Investment Management Inc. or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management, Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission, in Latin America, for intended recipients use only, by local J.P. Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada, for institutional clients use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Canada Inc., which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by JP Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by JP Morgan Asset Management Europe S, A Grave RL, in Asia Pacific, APAC, by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg. No. 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, JP Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, JP Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330, in Australia, 
to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.